0: our American stories and it's time for our weekly first job segment where we hear from famous and ordinary Americans alike about their very first jobs, what it was, what they learned, how it helped them get to where they are today, and oftentimes funny stories from that first job. And if you have a first job story, give us a call at 844-627-8255 and record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again that's 844 627 8255. Today's story is about Shahid Khan, an immigrant from Pakistan who is now a billionaire thanks to this country and the opportunity it gave him, which he's since spread to more people, employing over 13,000 Americans at his company FlexenGate, which we'll hear about more later. He also owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not bad. For an immigrant. In this first clip, which we got from Forbes and some of the terrific interviews they conduct there, we learn that he's 16 years old and decides to attend the University of Illinois. This is back in 1967. And when he arrives, he arrives in the middle of a blizzard. Indeed, it's the first time he's ever seen snow. And walking through that snow in Champaign, Illinois, to the local YMCA, his shoes start falling apart. Was he ever wondering whether he just made at this moment in his
1: life a big mistake? It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this, and uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks—I mean, I have that to this day, <laughs> where I'm hardwired, I can sense something like that, but in. Uh, it, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's uh, there, ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour, and I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country, Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. There's got to be a pony somewhere. I just love that.
0: I love that attitude. So he graduates at 21 with a mechanical engineering degree. While at Champaign at the University of Illinois, he meets his bride. But this was a pretty tough time economically, even for a guy with an engineering degree. And remember, he's an immigrant from Pakistan, so he has to hit the pavement. Let's take a listen to more.
1: Uh, You know, in the 70s when there was no connectivity, obviously, uh, email or how you got your resume out. I mean, I literally I went door to door because, uh, you know, I was a foreign student, but you could work legally in those days for 18 months. Uh, And I would start off in the morning uh, just going door to door industrial parks and what have you. And I did that for several months. Uh, And then, uh, one day, uh, this blacksmith shop of all places in Urbana uh, was looking for somebody to come in and do everything, Uh, uh, weld, grind, and, you know, I was able to get the job. At
0: the blacksmith he worked for, they designed custom
1: trucks for farmers,
0: one-offs. Shahid says that's how trucks were sold in those days, and they used to weld all these parts together. And the owner, who was a farmer, asked himself, could they do this better? Shahid came up with the idea of using stamping presses to make a one-piece uniform bumper. It looked a lot better. He didn't have the seams from welding. It lasted a lot longer, and it had a lot lower cost. And from that one idea, the owner said that he made more money in one year than the 40 years he worked in the field as a farmer and decided that he needed to sell the business. Then in 1978, when the second energy crisis hit the auto industry, Shahid decided that the real market opportunity was selling direct to the car makers, and he started his own company. He started out by employing just one other
1: person. The auto industry was not very receptive to smaller companies, and they would look at designs and they say, okay, we'll pay you and, uh, you know, use some of those, but GM was coming up with a small truck. This is in 78 because the energy crisis had hit. And I had a, they had missed the weight target and the guy uh, was about to get fired. So, at a, as a really act of desperation, he said, okay, you know, I'm going to buy this design, authorize GM to buy the design, so we can lower the inertia weight, show better fuel efficiency, and save the program. Uh, and except they couldn't make the part. And uh, then they turned to me and said, okay, you know, if we give you a purchase order, will you be able to do it? And I mean, I'll never forget it. You gotta remember, I mean, this in the 78, GM was probably close to 5% of the GDP of America.
0: And there you have it, what a story. And by the way, soon after that purchase order from GM, and what a big deal to get that first purchase order, Every new company is dying to land that big one from General Motors or IBM or some big company because that's how you grow into a bigger company yourself. He went from one employee to 53 and now has 13,000. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories, our weekly first job segment, Immigrant Shahid Khan Story. He started as a dishwasher, was hired on his second day in this country making $1.20 an hour. He thought that was just dandy. He was making more than 99% of the people where he'd just come from, Pakistan. And he said that this money wasn't like a melting ice cube. It was something he could replenish through work. He discovered his American dream within 24 hours of being an American. This is Lee Habib. And again, this is Our American Story. turn to our American stories, the most famous railroad engineer in American history was none other than the great Casey Jones. This is his story. Here's Jesse.
2: The Ballad of Casey Jones is a song about a railroad engineer and his death at the controls of the train. Johnny Cash covered it in his 1963 album, Blood, Sweat, and Tears.
3: Come all year-rounders if you want to hear The story about a brave engineer Casey Jones was the roller's name On a six-eight-wheeler wheeler boys, he rode to fame Caller called Casey about a half past four He kissed his wife at the station door He climbed in the cabin with his orders in his hand Said, this is the trip to the promised land Casey Jones Climbed in a cabin, Casey Jones, orders in his hand, Casey Jones, leaning out the window, taking a trip to the
2: promised land. At the age of 15, Casey Jones began working the telegraph for the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. In 1884, he moved to Jackson, Tennessee, where he was promoted to the position of flagman. He got married, bought a house, and had three kids. By 1891, he takes a job as an engineer for the Illinois Central Railroad. He quickly earns a reputation for always being on schedule, even if it means pushing the train faster than most men would dare. The public began to notice Casey Jones because of his trademark whistle that he would blare as he was racing through town. Its unique sound involved a long, drawn-out note, a sound that became his trademark. It was described like the war cry of a Viking. On April 30th, in the year 1900, just outside the small town of Vaughan, Mississippi, there was a train stalled ahead on the track that Casey Jones was running on, just after a long curve, hidden from his view until the last moment. When Casey Jones did see the other train, it was too late to prevent the crash. But with a collision imminent, he chose to become a hero. Holding the whistle to warn anyone on the other train, he slammed on the brakes and ordered his fireman to jump.
4: We had been running at very high speed. And we're about to hear a rare
2: first-hand account of this story. In this incredible recording, we will hear from a man named Sim Webb. Sim was on board that train with Casey
4: Jones Back in 1900, weather and visibility were fairly good, and Casey Jones hoped to bring us in on time at 4:05 a.m. Our engine was one specially built for these trains by the Rogers Locomotive Works, and had drivers six feet tall. On today's fine roadbeds, it would have traveled 100 miles an hour, possibly more we may easily have reached that speed and we certainly reached 90 often. The section of the line from Memphis to Grenada had recently been purchased from another railroad and the track had pretty light rail. This fact, rather than the fast schedule, I think, caused some of the engineers to pass up the job on that fast train from Grenada to Canton, however, the rails were standard, standard weight. Anyway, the time was made up, put Casey in a good humor, and he talked and joked with me all along. Sim, he said, if you keep the old girl hot, we'll go into Canton on time. I said, well, I'll keep her hot, and naturally I did. We took sighting at Goodman and were hardly in the clear before number two's headlight showed up from the south. After it passed, we backed out of the, on the main line and began the last 27 miles of our trip. Fifteen miles south of Goodman is the little town of Vaughan, approached by an S-curve, which swings first to the right, then back to the left. Naturally. On this type of curve, the engineer and fireman of the steam locomotive cannot see the track ahead at the same time. As we entered the curve, I put in a fire and climbed up and looked out of the cab window on my side, so that when we swung to the left, I could look ahead with a clear view of the siding and station. As we came out of the curve, there right ahead of us were the red rear markers of a train. Showing red meant that it was on the main line. At once I yelled to Casey, oh my lord, here's something on the main line. He jumped to his feet, looked diagonally across the top of the boiler, at the same time setting the air brakes in an emergency stop. He had to reach up to do it, as the valve was located high on these engines. Jump, Sim, jump, he shouted. I jumped across the deck, grabbed the handrail, slid down as far as I could go, then turned loose. Casey never had a chance. The engineer's seat on one side, and the long boiler which divided us, the cab on the other side, made escape practically impossible. Hitting the ground knocked me unconscious. I woke up about 30 minutes later to hear voices say, here he is. We had hit the caboose of the freight train, gone through it, a car of hay, a car of corn, and halfway through a car of lumber, all of them on the main line, the rest of the train on the side we had no orders against this train or any other except number two which we had already passed our clearance card gave us rights over everything and we didn't have to look out for anybody if a train is blocking the main line railroad rules require that a flagman must go out 10 telegraph poles distance and place two warning torpedoes two rail links apart then a stop torpedo if a train approaches He must also light a red fusee. This flagman must remain out until called in. Without warning, we plowed into that caboose. The wreck occurred at 3.52 a.m., and as we had only 12 miles to go, with a clear track, we probably would have arrived at Cannon safely on time. If we had been properly warned, Casey Jones might have been alive today.
2: Because Jones stayed on board to slow the train, he was believed to have saved the passengers from serious injury and death. His watch stopped at the time of impact, 3.52 a.m. Legend holds that when his body was pulled from the wreckage, his hands still clutched to the whistle cord and brake. And thus the legend of Casey Jones was born. The wrecked 382 train that Jones died in was brought to Water Valley, Mississippi to be rebuilt. It was soon back in service on the same run, but bad luck always seemed to follow that train. January 3rd, 1903, train robbers caused 382 to wreck. The engineer's legs were broken and badly burned. His fireman died three days later. January 22nd, 1912, 382 was involved in a wreck that killed four prominent railroad men and injured several others. The locomotive was retired and finally scrapped in July of 1935. On the way to the scrapyard, it jumped the rails and cost the life of one final victim. For our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
3: Through South Memphis, yards on the fly. Rain been a fallin' and the water was high. Everybody knew by the engine's moan that the man at the throttle was Casey Jones. Well, Jones said, "Fireman, don't you fret." Wow. Sim Welf said, "I ain't a givin' up yet." We're well, eight hours late with the southbound mail. Wow. Be on time or we're we'll leaving the rails. Casey Jones climbed in the cabin. Casey Jones orders in his hand. Casey Jones. Leaning out the window Taking a trip to the promised land Dead on the rail was a passenger train Blood was a-boiling in him, Casey's brain Casey said, Hey, look out ahead, Sam! Jump, Sam, jump! all oh, he did Well, a hand on a whistle and a hand on a brake North Mississippi was wide awake I see railroad official said He's a good engineer to be a layin' dead Casey Jones Climbed in the cabin Casey Jones Orders in his hand Casey Jones Leaning out the window Taking a trip to the promised land
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. Love, faith, work, business, history, sports, and courage, and all these stories from all over the country. And this one comes from a slightly unexpected place, Somalia, 1993. American forces were protecting the humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of the Somali warlord's top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. The ground task force was cobbled together to secure the first crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, saw how desperate the situation was. An armed force of hundreds converged on the crash site and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into that crash site. This request was crazy, and it was denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again they were denied. One more time, they asked, and finally, finally they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred-meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Schugart were killed in action. But because of them, because of their efforts, the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for America fighting men. But where does that leave the families of this hero? What about those kids? Well, Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, she wrote this letter, this remarkable letter, for their children, then aged six and three. My
5: dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them, No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement. Baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission... Your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse. Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally. Dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military, and I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, He did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad? You miss Daddy? You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble, and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly he said, A poem, in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform, and up home, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, burying their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass this grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute, a final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice, quiet but confident in the words he wanted us to have if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life, but always, always follow your heart. Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom.
0: And what a beautiful letter from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon's bride, Carmen. And always were stunned and pretty staggered by the beauty in the writing of so many soldiers in this country and their families. Jim Carroll's war letters, we've spent a lot of time on them. It's some of the best writing in America, folks. It comes from you. It comes from the people of this country. We're beautiful people. I wanted to share another piece of writing, this one from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon himself. This was a letter he crafted to his bride in the event of his death. And soldiers in conflict have a habit of doing this. They know what could happen. Here's that letter. Quote, I'm so very lucky to have you as a wife. I know you have the ability to go far and shall as long as you believe. It takes longer to build that foundation because the bricks break off now and again. Life's funny sometimes. The key is to keep a sense of humor. Don't take it seriously. Enjoy it. The real secret to life is already inside us. Just dig a little deep, and my goodness, what beautiful words for anybody to live by. And as always, a call out to all of our fighting men—those who came before, those that will come after. Their courage and self-sacrifice, always in order. And we love to share these stories—stories stories of courage, love, loss, and faith—here on our American story. Continue with Our American Stories, and now the story of Troy and Erica Andrews. Alex had previously brought us their adoption journey that you can hear at OurAmericanNetwork.org. But Troy's story of accidentally finding himself as an energy executive, well, we found that one to be interesting too. Let's take a listen.
6: I'm not a, you know, I'm not an engineer. Most people in the energy space are engineers. I'm a psychology major. (laughs) I mean, I'm nothing special at all. And so I don't pretend to have all the answers so I just try to know people and I try to put good people around me who can make me successful or make us successful together right and I've tried to realize my weaknesses which are easy because I have lots of them in my work environment I've pretty much done everything the wrong way and had to learn the hard way lots of times but at the end of the day it's all people right so it's just people working And you get people who are engineers, they're really good at engineering stuff, but they're also a person and they come with their same quirks and some engineers can really get along with people and others can't. And you're trying to put a group of people together to accomplish a mission. And you got to find those people as puzzles that fit together well, that can work together. And I guess that there's one good thing that I can do, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned that I don't have all the answers, that I'm pretty average at energy, I'm, I know a little bit about a lot of things. I mean, the, you know, the companies I've worked for have moved me around into lots of different roles.
7: Um, he started in the, let's go back, because I think this is very good to know. So Troy, how did you get into the energy business?
6: <laughs> well, I was, uh, I thought I wanted to be a clinical counselor, I moved to Iowa City. Where I wanted to go to the University of Iowa to be a clinical counselor. Get his so master's. I wanted to get my master's degree and my doctorate, which you have to do to get all of that. And in the summer, I needed a job, so I was dating a girl at the time. Her dad worked at the pipeline. They were hiring people to mow, like mow the tank yards where all the tanks are, like tank dikes and everything, and so I mowed. So that's how I started in the energy space, pretty much the lowest there's really nothing lower.
7: nothing lower. He was a summer hand mowing I was a tank summer dikes hand
6: mowing yeah. and uh, they paid really well. It was like eight dollars an hour back. But
7: then. but he mowed those tank dikes so well and was a hard worker that they saw something in him. <laughs> and there was a job that opened up in Des Moines for an yeah, operator so they and, opened they said, up
6: and they they offered me a job as a unit operator and which is like the next lowest job. <laughs> <laughs> so the nice thing is is I was raised. Mom was always like, if you don't find a job, I'll find one for you. So then <laughs> I never wanted to work the job she found. I mean, I'd, she would usually go to the local fruit farm and I'd end up working piecework, picking tomatoes and, you know, get 50 cents for the a five gallon bucket or detassling corn. I mean, I wanted to pick my own jobs. <laughs> so I had the Midwestern work ethic. I mean... My car broke down. This is what got oh, me promoted. Oh, this is so good. So it's middle of the winter. I had a really crummy car. It was a, it was a, a it was a Malibu classic, <laughs> but it just had a lot of miles. And it was, anyway, it's freezing cold, Des Moines, Iowa. I got an apartment that was maybe like three miles from where I worked. And this was the first couple of weeks that I was working there. And so you're kind of in a probationary period where you can lose your job real easily. So it's snowing out. I went out to start it and the engine blew up. And so I didn't have a car. And when I left school, I really didn't have a coat. Almost everything I had got stolen. <laughs> it's cool. I don't know how, but my letterman's jacket got stolen. I didn't have he anything. Was poor. I was really poor. Remember my dad gave me like 500 bucks to get my first apartment and I had to give it back to him when I got my first paycheck. That was the T as my daughter says, that's what I had to do. (laughs) Anyway, I had no way to get to work. So I just got up really early and I layered up clothes and I walked. And first day I walked, got there on time. And the second day I'm walking to work. I had to do that until I was able to buy a car. I couldn't get my paycheck. It just wasn't a good situation. Wait, did his dad still make him fork over all of his first paycheck, even though his car unexpectedly broke down? Oh, yeah, I had to pay him back. And so, <laughs> so I was walking to work, and the supervisor of the facility drove past me. And I still remember him trying to stop, and he slid all the way down the hill because it was just a sheet of ice. And he backs up, and he goes, what are you doing? And I go, walking to work. And he goes, Why? <laughs> And I said, well, my car broke down a couple days ago and I got to get to work. And he goes, get in. So I, I get in, drive and he goes, look, I don't want you walking to work, it's dangerous out. It's like zero. And he goes, call the guys at work, have them come pick you up until you can get you a car. And so I said, all right, all right, all right. Well, I wasn't going to do that because, you know, they I'm not going to take them away from their work to come get me. So I was walking to work the next day. (laughs) This
7: is the story he told me that made me fall in love with him. That's why it only took six months.
6: And he drove past me again. And there was no way to get around There was only one road to get there. So I was going to see him at some point. So he drove past me again, stopped, and he goes, I thought I told you not to walk to work. And I said, I don't want to call those guys and have them come pick me up. They're working. And he goes just do what I told you to do, have them call you. So then I I stopped he goes, if I catch you walking to work again, you're going to be in big trouble. (laughs) Well, to me, I was able to show them that I was willing, one, to do whatever it takes to get to work, two, that I was going to work when I was there and I wasn't going to slough off or I was going to do my best all the time. And I was going to learn as much as I could. Well, within 10 months, they promoted me. I ended up moving to Omaha. And then they moved me to Sioux City, and that's where I met her when I moved up to like Sioux City.
7: Two days after you moved there, I was living day, in the yeah. Howard
6: Johnson, the Hojo,
7: yeah. the old Hojo, and
6: uh, yeah, I met her, and wow, I was like, "This is she's beautiful." So, and we hit it off, and
7: he told to... me that story, and so I fell in love. <laughs> 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 I do think it was that story. I was like, "Oh." <laughs>
6: in a ministry called Village Ministries International and it's all energy guys that started this. These guys did this on their own and they go train indigenous pastors in third-world countries to minister to their own people in their own language and they equip them to do that. But these guys did that on their own and these guys are energy executives. They work in the energy space and it's not an evil. I mean it's necessary. Everybody uses energy. If you're walking on your carpet You know, the paint on your house, it's all made from energy. So, you know, unless you're just living in a hut, like, (laughs) and you're not, and you're riding a bicycle, which that bicycle was made out of energy, you know, the tires, the frame, all of it. I mean, everything we do in this world comes from petroleum that actually comes from the ground, you know? And I always tell people, if you look at the oil spill in the Gulf Coast that happened Yes, it did kill some things initially because it was in such great concentration. But then as it gets dispersed out, there's actually a lot of fertilizer that comes from energy. Sulfur and all the things that are in there, it actually ends up greening everything up. If you try to, if you dump it on your grass, it'll kill it initially, but then it'll come back greener than it was before, typically. It's salt water that kills everything. I mean, the Dead Sea, you know, the Great Salt Lake. I mean, <laughs> salt water is what kills things. It's not oil. <laughs> Thankfully, their marriage is still alive. Troy and Erica just celebrated their 25th wedding
1: anniversary.
7: I would like to renew our vows. i
6: tell you what she'd like me to redo. She'd like me to redo how I proposed to her. Yes. <laughs> it was probably the worst weakest it proposal. Everybody, Laura, are you going to tell the story? Um,
7: I don't. It, I, I don't know. I worked at this restaurant bar all through college, waiting tables. I worked every Monday night. I worked Monday night football, and usually it wasn't very busy. But we did, you know, a bucket of beers, and so that's how I met Troy. So it was a little apropos, I guess. One night, I'm working, he comes in for Monday Night Football, sitting at the bar, just, he was nervous as a cat, and just kept, his legs were shaking, and I kind of walked by, I looked down, I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, want this? (laughs) And I go, are you serious right now? Are you really doing?
6: This is your proposal to me?
7: (laughs) I'm delivering nachos to table 12, you know, and he's like, want this? So anyway, oh gosh, it was, was bad. But then, you know, I said, "Of course." Called all my girlfriends, get over here. He's had to make up for that for a long time. So.
6: <laughs> yeah, that was pretty mean. <laughs> I was just really nervous. I mean, I was like, "Okay, I got to do this. I'm gonna do it." I mean, I, I I wasn't questioning whether I was gonna do it. I just was ready to do it. Let's do this. I really don't. He's more to than made up, up for it. it.
0: And what a story that is. And boy, what a lame proposal, Troy. That is pretty weak. And I'm glad you can laugh about it and your bride can. And always trying to put a human face on the people who do all kinds of things for a living here in this great country. And we've spent quite a bit of time on the folks in Midland, Texas. And this is one of the great oil towns in America. And when we can, we like to tell the other side of the story The story that's not told here in this great country Troy and Erica Andrews' story Here on Our American Stories And if you have a story like this in your community If you're listening And there's a love story or an entrepreneur's story Or your own story Send those stories to ouramericannetwork.org That's ouramericannetwork.org Troy and Erica Andrews' story Again here on Our American Stories This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you've been anywhere near a beach or a campsite in the last few years, you've probably noticed the high-end Yeti brand coolers just about everywhere. If you don't already own one yourself, that is. They're built to last, they work remarkably well, and no, they're not sponsors. The people behind these Yeti coolers are a family of entrepreneurs out of Austin, Texas. And they have an incredible story.
2: Here's Jesse. Roger Cedars is a businessman and inventor. He quit his job as a high school teacher in the mid 70s to go full time with his company, Flexcoat, which is still in business today. So it's no surprise that he passed on an innovative attitude to his sons, Yeti co founders Roy and Ryan Cedars. Pull. But even though the entrepreneurial spirit resonates loudly, it's Roger's lessons on fatherhood that stand out as Roy and Ryan raise families of their own.
8: Pull. Bad Ryan for a 28
9: gauge. When Ryan was still wearing diapers, we'd have a thunderstorm. He would wake up, go look out the window before daybreak. When he was able to get outside, he'd take a little red wagon and a little net and go out in the ditches and uh, scoop up crawfish out of the ditches. There's just something in his blood that makes him want to hunt. If he was born 500 years ago. In Texas, and you had to survive, he could still survive. You know, there's something
10: about that. I know those Comanches might get me. (laughs) Well, Hunting and fishing was our passion. I think some people would think we're over the top, but you you have to have that passion first, and then you might stumble into something. We were into the outdoors, we were into the gear, and, and that's what eventually got us to Yeti. Roy had always said that ideas are like commodities, and and they really are, unless you're hanging around someone like Roger or Roy who can bring them to life in front of you or take them to market.
8: It was really the boat business that brought me to the cooler business. Everything about the boats I was putting together was high-end and durable and for fishing the Texas Gulf Coast the way we like to fish, except ordinary coolers. They weren't really matching the quality of the rest of the boat. And if you look back, everything led to the Cooler business. Growing up out here in Driftwood, in the Texas Hill Country, we spent our entire days outside. We were running around with BB guns, and the, then eventually pellet guns, then eventually 22s. You know, our upbringing, our dad's small business, him wearing all the hats, we were always out getting our hands dirty building stuff. I think that exposure, it was valuable. Growing up when we worked, we worked inside the business. Other kids were out there mowing lawns to make their summer money, and Ryan and I were building fishing
10: rods. It was always flex
8: kids. As long as we could remember. Yeah. That started out of his garage in Houston when we were probably, the, I think it was the same year I was born, and Ryan was three or four.
9: If we can't find what we want, we make it. This is my business, this building here is 32 years old. Flexco, our number one product is we sell coatings to all the fishing rod companies. Almost every fishing rod made in the US, I would say 90% of them use our coating. We call this a lifestyle business. Everything we make, we make it for ourselves first and then we try to sell it. I just started making gadgets and anything related to building fishing rods and it just turned into a business.
8: The reason Ryan and I were so fired up about starting our own small business was to
10: have that lifestyle that my dad had. What we saw with our dad was he had a lot of free time and could do what he wanted to do.
8: The same way he is with those kids is how he was with us. When I got off the bus at 3 o'clock, he'd drop everything he was doing in the business and be with us. He was engaged, he was hands on, he was there, he was present.
10: He always had a van around here. I drove it to the Florida Keys 13 times. We didn't have any money. We were living out of the van, sleeping during the daytime and 90 degrees, and then fishing at night below the bridges. It was a lot of fun. And I was kind of encouraged to do that kind of stuff by my dad. I think it teaches you some valuable skills in life. I always say, thank goodness for golf. (laughs) Get those guys off the water. (laughs) I am a true believer in starting your own business and eventually you'll find a path. As my kids get older, that's one of my main goals is try to figure out how to get that passion built up inside of them for doing your own thing.
8: When I was becoming a dad, I thought naturally I was going to be a good dad like my dad just because that's what I was exposed to. He set the bar pretty high, almost too high where it's hard to duplicate for our kids. The most precious resource we have is time, and that's time with the family. It's different times. We have all these other distractions. The easy path is not the right path. It's harder to pull those electronics away from the kids, make them look out the window and see where you're going. The formula is being engaged, being present, and supportive. It's a lot easier to say it than actually do it.
9: I tell you, that's the ultimate in my mind. Just find something you love. just stick with it
2: yeti began to take off in 2011 when sales hit 29 million as word spread among the hardcore hunting and fishing crowd in 2014 that figure hit 147 million for 2015 yeti closed in on 450 million in sales i'm jesse edwards and this is our american stories And what a great
0: piece. And by the way, that's the voice of the American dream there. Practical, sturdy, risk takers, self reliant. And it ain't made up, folks. It happens all over the country. We bring you stories like these because, well, the rest of the media doesn't. This is Lee Habib, Yeti's story, a great family story, here on Our American Stories. and this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of the highly popular television show Beavis and Butthead. <laughs>
11: <laughs>
12: the stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them, so they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education.
13: Uh, What's this crap?
12: Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid, have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead Two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who live somewhere in the Southwest were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of (sighs) superseded Wayne and Garth's not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge.
13: I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. <laughs> <clears throat> <clears throat> Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook and I kind of had them lying around and there was this sick and twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing and I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts, I thought, okay, I should animate something with these guys and I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything i don't know in probably like two or three minutes (laughs) i I remembered a kid saying something about frog baseball which is kind of a sick game you know i guess i was thinking about these just out of control 14 year olds that i've known growing up (laughs) that would be cool
12: beavis and butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992 here's executive producer abby turkley
14: we wanted to, to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the
13: roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turcooley calling me and saying, um, You know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see because I'm hearing my voice going, huh, You know, and then
14: seeing these kids going, huh.
10: This said to be continued to the other Would you like to
14: see more? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy Can I buy this out of the tape machine?
5: Uh, Could you, like, record the tape for us? You, you want a copy of the tape?
12: Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors.
6: And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, 10 years. I've never heard anyone say, can I buy the tape? And so it was frog baseball.
14: We tested it with women as well in separate groups, uh... And I think the women were cooler at first. I hated it. Absolutely
6: hated it. It was horrible.
7: It was irritating irritating to look at. I just thought it was awful.
13: Uh, you just weren't reaching us, dude.
14: I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what? We got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help.
7: Have you Heimlich the victim? (laughs) No way.
14: (laughs)
13: Boy, the the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th, and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day, and they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing, it's about writing stupid, which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there.
3: Do you think that's funny, butthead?
13: I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. remember after the the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like going to bury my head in the sand and... Uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> I said, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0.6, 0.7. We got a one. And, oh, good. Then the next night it was 1.2. The next night, it's the same episode airing over and over again. And by Friday, it was like 1.8.
6: first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live-action, Wayne's World-type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we l- literally put the brakes on everything for a while.
13: At first I was thinking of just, there are these two guys who, uh, are just around each other all the time they don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends and so there's these inside jokes that that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time
12: okay armstrong here armijo present baka yeah butt kiss (sighs) (laughs) what's wrong with you two We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day, when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. Is it really still that funny? Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name (laughs) Buttkiss? That does it. Principal's office, now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown.
1: They were
13: clearly self-destructive.
12: You've had destructive
13: impulses, right? Uh, no. (laughs) But no matter how miserable their existence was, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. (laughs) Money. (laughs) Money. Money. (laughs) Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But... They always manage to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their (laughs) and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks, they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah, (laughs) I think he likes (laughs) him. They are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of in their own way philosophize about things, which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school? Yeah.
7: <laughs> I think it's working.
13: Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with the drawing, and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, i just drawn ha-ha-ha on there. Um, I started doing that laugh, and I was kind of, like, going, like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it until probably two years into the show that it was... There was a guy at my high school, he was... Uh, Really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just—you'd see him in the hallway, and I would always see him when the hallway was empty, and he'd just start like—he's one of these guys that he'd start going, "Hey, Mike," and so when I was when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, and I would get—I would be doing it sort of to get into character, to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, "Well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time, anyway." <laughs> <laughs> the Beavis laugh. There was a guy who was. Uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. I hope he doesn't figure out who he is <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he just like he was biting his lip all the time, and just kind of going like. <laughs> Like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. (laughs) That's right, everyone. If
12: we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community.
3: Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist!
13: Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably... That's probably my favorite character, other than Beavis, to to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and um, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you having grown up in the Deep South to be able to travel to Europe and
0: experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead. This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead. And I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler.
12: Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. Very <laughs> good, Butthead. That's right.
13: I wanted to have this this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. The, the, only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying
12: why don't we each
3: tell what impressions we took away from the museum
15: <clears> hey <throat> but it what did you take away <laughs>
3: boy oh boy what i wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little b- that took my mower
13: mr anderson there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that i grew up in albuquerque new mexico actually and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a texas accent i had a paper out when i was a kid my brother and i had one you'd go collect at the end of the month door to door back then we went up to the door and uh the guy looked at us you know and he and so it was our first month collecting he says well you ain't my paper boy and my brother said yeah well i know your paper boy quit and where are the new paper boys and he
3: Well, I know what my paper
13: boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're gonna have to cancel your, cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm gonna get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally, he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription and
3: (laughs) Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa. It's
13: Todd.
15: Hey, I know. Hey, I know.
13: Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this... uh, We had a family down at the end of of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle right on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the shit out of us whenever he could.
3: I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands.
13: There was a, a band director in ninth grade, I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, and he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning, and he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was,
3: oh, 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 oh,
12: what are you doing? Oh, watch your m- m- mouth, hey, you little sons of bitches! Ah, oh,
15: oh,
12: here's what? head writer producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is
15: starting to suck.
12: <laughs>
15: Do I get into heaven or not? There were
13: Senate hearings in the fall of '93 where. Uh, Senator Hollings cited us as uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver
3: or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly he was well-informed. Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buffcoat and Beaver, boy, they've been nothing but trouble.
13: Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just... It's the same
16: thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's
12: South Park co-creator Trey Parker.
16: I remember uh, right before South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he uh, he was sitting there going, Well, you know, don't... Uh Don't let people take advantage of you because
6: (laughs) they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said
12: Here's rapper Snoop
11: Dogg.
9: First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and um, just put the TV on MTV. And I peeped it out and I was tripping because they was acting a fool. Shut up. You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have like lots of
12: friends.
15: Uh, not really. Are we healthy?
12: Here's writer Larry Doyle.
15: Mike can make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He, he could say, Butthead's saying, "Make it snappy." And there's just something about the way he said it. And it, you know, it helped a little bit that Butthead is a little bit of a lisp.
17: You men want a date?
13: Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the kite, <kind>, baby. Cool.
15: <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard was a giant fan of the of the show and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were.
18: Oh, no. We cannot allow ourselves to think that.
12: Here again, it's Trey Parker.
16: The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And, and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh, uh, and, and almost a, a very open-your-eyes-people. And, and, you know, now I know... Mike en- enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know, and, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy, and he actually, you know, was, was trying to say something, you know, that, that this this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to feel it. You know, Beavis, it doesn't
13: get any better than this. <laughs>
16: Something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is, you don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy, and and it inspired us in that way just to go, let's just do it ourselves, we'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It it really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there, and and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I
13: always reference TV I grew up on because that's that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're going to... You know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television. And I, I loved the Beverly Hillbillies,
15: Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavers and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Oh, well, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well... I guess so, but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? (laughs) You know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor, even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was... I mean, they were just dumb guys. And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of dumb-guy comedies. You guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid.
12: Here's former president of Viacom, Van Tosman.
15: I think it's really
13: about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do in the prism through which they see life. And particularly innocent, one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they are really based and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd say it to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real, they were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it, Cheech and Chong, I don't, you know, you just kinda wanna be there with those guys and, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category.
15: I'm just glad it's finally over, you know what I'm
13: saying? <laughs> yeah really, at least now we can get on with our lives.
0: Great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, it gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these silly, stupid, the Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage, adolescence, boys. Mike Judge, Beavis, and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for another story of a song, one of our favorite segments here on Our American Stories. And this one features two musicians who were reputed to be seeking perfection. But as guitarist Dean Parks said, quote, Perfection is not what they were after. They're after something that you wanted to listen to over and over again. Let's take a listen to what Craig Hengler has for us today.
12: They were hipsters before the term was coined, which would make them the real deal. It's widely considered that over-engineering a track ultimately ends in failure. Not here. In an age before Pro Tools, Steely Dan engineered some of the best analog production ever. So exacting, so tight, their style was a sophisticated and seamless fusion of jazz and pop music. Their style became known as Yacht Rock, and Steely Dan docked a fleet of remarkable hits. The band consisted of just two core members. Donald Fagan grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just a 20-minute drive to New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel, and Walter Becker, who grew up in Queens. Here's Walter Becker.
3: you everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast.
1: The original Steely Dan Band was formed in 1971. There were five of us, and Donald and I wrote the songs.
16: Are you in the east? away the time? Are you
17: gathering
7: the you had of
1: We toured for a while to support the first couple of albums, but we didn't really like it, so we stopped in 1974 didn't tour again for 19 years. By the time uh, we released Asia, the other members of the band uh, were gone except for Denny Dias, and uh, we'd replaced them with session musicians and some of our favorite soloists.
12: Here's Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and fellow session contributors for the Asia album providing a fascinating glimpse into one of those recordings, Peg, on track four. Drummer Rick Marada recounts what many consider one of the greatest drum groups ever recorded.
14: I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I ever played on. As far as drums we were going at that time, it was like if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet you could uh, play I had just opened my hi-hat a hair every couple of beats with what I was playing with my right hand on the hi-hat and it created this little sound now I've done that, but never ever heard it on the record that I had done because engineers and sounds at the time you know it was it was one of those things where it's a nuance and those things didn't exist shut up, shut
3: up, you
12: see it all, baby, here's Fagin and Becker in the studio playing with the soundboard while admiring the sneaky bass stylings of Chuck Rainey
11: as I remember this was kind of a written bass part but he fixed it up and his own parts of it were written right. this part was written First part, just a great musician, slapping and also fretting with his thumb,
8: Chuck had a really unique, there's here's the chorus, which was,
11: uh you have to ask Chuck about the thumb business, you know?
18: They didn't want me to slap, I think, mainly because at that time, slapping was just becoming popular and it was on a lot of records. However, my be being a player, I think there are some songs that slapping sounds good. And no matter who you are, you want to keep in the fold of what's happening. Uh, Peg, uh, uh, that bridge there just seemed to be a slapping thing for me. Mm. They said, well, no, play with your fingers, uh, you know, something like that. And then you played these songs so many times that after a while, I remember just turning just a little bit, either this way or this way and putting up a uh, partition. And uh, they were about that high. of course, sitting in a much lower chair. And uh, I remember, you know, slapping. They never knew it went down. They never knew it, except afterwards, you can tell there was a difference in that bridge.
8: All right, and here, see, I'll put in the keyboards again here so you got, like, here's your little rhythm
11: section. Uh, trio here.
8: I'll tell you one thing that's interesting that, that I'm listening to now is that you don't really hear... Uh,
14: in, a, in a lot of groups that you hear, there's a lot of doubling between the uh, bass and the kick drum and you can hear here that the, the kick drum is all sort of syncopated.
1: It's not really... You know what I mean?
14: It's not doubling so much the strong beats that the bass is playing. You gotta love them, but it's not like, you go in there and you're just really good friends and you'll play and you'll try to get into it and they'll say, yeah, that's really good. And then the next day somebody else is doing it, a whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band, they played musical bands. A whole band would go and a whole incredible other band would come in.
11: We never came up with a band of our own that we felt was the right combination of guys, that it was stable. It was just me and Walter. You hear somebody in a record and you say, wow, listen to this, this guy's a great solo, so let's have him come in. You know, what would he be good on, you know, what would suit his style, you know? That's the fun. This tune, I think, is infamous among studio players in that we hired a couple of guitar players, you know, to play the solo. And and it wasn't quite what we were looking for um, until mm-hmm. we got through three or four, five players. Six, six, six players, or seven, six you or know. Six seven, eight players. Something else soloed, or oh, there it is. Let's check this out. Put it, go back, and let's hear it in the track. Probably the, the, the last guy to try it before Jay did it. Here's another one. What is that? Some kind of little envelope filter thing he's got going there on his guitar? Didn't someone did this to you?
14: And then finally, um, Jay Graydon came in and did it with no um, difficulty whatsoever.
11: Yeah, kind of, kind of a Polynesian. Sort of prefigured my own later resonance in Hawaii.
12: Here's the great Michael
3: McDonald.
17: I'd worked with him enough to kind of know what I was in for, you know, (laughs) certain words that they just wanted to hear a certain way that. You know, normally, under normal normal circumstances, people wouldn't, you know, they'd kind of, this is the words, you hear the parts, uh, you sing it, and, you know, uh, that's the phrasing. But for those guys, uh, phrasing could have such nuance, you know, that, uh, you know, singing a line like half as much as you'd think, oh, you know, how many different ways can you say it in that phrasing rhythmically, And you know. But it would be it would come down to such fine points like uh, pronunciation and uh, exact rhythmic you know uh, vibrato, no vibrato you know uh, things like that and so you. it was always real challenging.
11: He did a couple parts on, on top of himself all in 3d moving. check us out his hot part, just to embarrass him Cool. back to you. Okay. <laughs> back to you. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. <laughs> there it is. It's all so yours, too.
3: All in greedy, movie. Peg, back, back to you.
17: Peg doesn't sound like much of a part, but the harmonies were so close that um, that was a, a real learning experience for me to sing a chord, you know, part by part with myself that... Uh, you know, when you're going back into to sing that next harmony, it's so close to the note you're singing. It, it was just uh, real hard for me to discern that interval and, and keep it in pitch, you know.
1: We had a pretty
14: specific idea about this, uh, how these background parts would work and the sort of swing band rhythmic approach and how we wanted it phrased
2: and so on.
12: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story,
0: and so many different ways songs come to be. Some it's spontaneous, some, my goodness, over and over again, laborious, fastidious, and that's Steely Dan, the ultimate studio band. The story of a song, Peg, and how it came to be, here on Our American Stories.